I'm James Norton. And I'm Dina Graziano. And this is Homeland Homeroom. If you're new to Homeland Homeroom, welcome. I'm the former Democratic Communications Director for the House Homeland and Judiciary Committees. And I'm the former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security in the George W. Bush Administration. So we do come from different sides of the aisle, but we do have a lot of common ground. We do, especially when it comes to privacy. And it seems like with every new technology comes a new threat to our privacy. Drones, smartphones, Alexa in the kitchen, it all comes with one question. How much privacy are we giving up in exchange for our daily convenience? And joining us today to talk through some of the major privacy issues we're facing is Michelle Richardson, Deputy Director of the Freedom, Security, and Technology Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, we go back a long time on the Hill, post-9-11, Patriot Act. Uh, Michelle's probably one of the most, uh, the smartest privacy advocates I know in town. So we thought we'd bring her here. And, you know, I'd ask you, what are you most concerned about in terms of privacy right now? You know, I'm just concerned at how fast technology is developing and that the average person just can't keep up with it, right? Even if you wanted to be informed and understand the types of information that's being collected about you, how it's being used, your options for controlling it, you just can't. And we're just creating an ecosystem where everything you do, everyone you speak to, everywhere you go is being memorialized and saved somewhere and often without an immediate purpose. Right. And we have to move more into a world where information is really only collected, saved and used. If someone agrees, they understand what they're sharing it for and that it has an actual use. Right. Not that we're going to save it later, uh, maybe sell it to somebody. And that's where we want to see the world move as far as privacy is concerned. So there's a lot of questions going on around the Internet of Things or IoT. Uh, We not only have smart speakers, but smart TVs, smoke detectors, refrigerators, everything connected to the Internet, which, in my opinion, sometimes is a little ridiculous. Um, It's been a long concern that these technologies are hackable. What preventions are being implemented to protect specific devices against risk? Yeah, and this really seems to depend on the manufacturer, right? We have some good actors here who are trying to build secure products and others who are just putting cheap stuff out as fast as they can, right? They don't intend them to be durable goods. I think we see a lot of professional organizations coming out with the same short list of best practices for IoT. So things like no hard-coded passwords, encryption for the data, whether it's at rest or in transit, and, you know, that the device actually works for its primary purpose when it's disconnected, So if some point your fridge or your toaster or whatever we're connecting, you know, tomorrow um, no longer is getting updates, you could still use it. And so these are some of the basics that we're hoping to see built into the IoT. Um, Many people don't quite know what to do to make sure their device is secure. They, you know, go onto any Wi-Fi. They have 1234 as a password. So you think there's a way to actually have manufacturers build in the software in a way that when you buy your device at the Verizon store, it's already ready to go and secure? Right. I think a lot of these decisions can be made by the manufacturer. They can be built in by default. There are, of course, going to be some things that the user has to do, but we should really be limiting that to a couple of key things. Like right? in your setup mode. Yeah. I think you can even see it, right, in our lifetimes, just how complicated things were when you bought a computer and you had to set it up. It was like a day-long commitment, <laughs> right? And you're uploading all these different CDs with software. And and now, I mean, they come out of the box and it's like magic, right? What about, um, I mean, you're talking about these individual products and security in the products. 
What about these user agreements they have to sign? You know, people essentially are signing away their lives. They have their, their these 97-page things that you, if you scroll through and then you click and then you accept, of course you're going to accept. You want to I read eat. every word. I'm sure. I'm sure you do. I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably a test in your house. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I, I don't. I can tell you that, you know, relatives don't. Whoever does, they just don't have time for it. They want to use. The, they spend a bunch of money. They want to use it, and they're just going to click yes, having no idea, you know, what they've just signed up for. Right. And I know we're going to talk about privacy legislation today, but I think this is the model we need to break out of. And that's the most important thing we should do at this moment when everybody's paying attention and they want to see change is get out of what we call the notice and consent model. Right. If they technically write it down and you technically click the box, you know, that's it. That's the end of the negotiation. That's the end of your rights. And so we need to move to a system where we basically make some decisions about what's appropriate and what's not. One of my colleagues has this great example of an app that's a flashlight, just the basic flashlight, mm-hmm. and it was collecting location information, right? And it was, of course, buried in those terms of service, right. so it was legal for them to collect mm-hmm. it, but it also had no relation to what people were actually signing up for. And I think that's the line we're looking to draw. Well, and these aren't just American companies, right? These are companies from all over the world. They're all collecting different types of data. Some some countries we like, some countries we're not sure, you know, where we are with. But all this data is flowing out there in terms of these individuals, and it really seems like it's a situation where, you know, you don't have a choice. If you want to watch TV, right. you have to you have to do this, right? Exactly, and that's the other thing that I think that's great about this conversation over the last year or two is, people are stopped talking about technology as something frivolous. Right. Something you could just you know, avoid. Right. Don't post your selfies. You know, no one needs to see the picture of your grilled cheese Can't sandwich. Right. And, you know, people are now having a more ominous conversation about, you know, it's being used in schools, in the workplace. Um, you cannot avoid it. And what about, um, you know, technology is moving so fast. You know, now with our phones, we want to be able to use facial recognition or that's that's an option now that seems to be used. I mean, what, where are you with facial recognition and that technology is it is it too soon is it something we really should think long and hard about is it what what do you think about that well i think the recent flare-up has really been about law enforcement use and um there are just different stakes when law enforcement uses these technologies whether it's facial recognition or something else right the consequences are incredibly great again the privacy alone i think if you if you don't know your face is being captured and and being put into this government database and understand they may be looking for some bad actors. But, you know, you're talking about thousands, if not millions, of potential pieces of identifiable information now being stored, as you said, when you started off, that information is collected and then stored and they're not sure what they're going to do with it yet. Plus, everyone distrusts the government, I think, at this point. Even U.S. citizens or everyone before Snowden, everyone felt like, oh, it's, you know, or most people felt like, oh, they're not going to spy on me. They're not going to use my information. Um, for nefarious purposes, but then we found out, oh, lo and behold, they are looking at U.S. citizens all the time. That was the Obama administration, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just wanted to be sure which administration it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, often when these um, programs come up, we hear from government representatives, "Don't worry, we're going to use this for this one little use, and that's it." But it always grows. Right. And we have found that once it's implemented, it's almost impossible to dial back. Um, Let me just throw something at you when you talk about maybe potential bills and maybe if Democrats take over the House, there'll be there'll be more trial lawyers in the House or something like that. But my my question is, and this is something that I'm actually fairly passionate on, is that I, I don't feel like there's there's not a value on an individual's data. There's not a value on your data, my data, Dina's data. 
you know, if there were, if my, the value of my data being lost was ten thousand dollars, right? I feel like that would be a big motivator for corporations, governments, whatever, to really work on privacy, work on these different things. I mean, do you think damages or individual value for for people? And I heard some of this conversation around the Equifax breach on the Hill a little bit, but not a lot, but just a little. But do you think that's a place where where this could go? That's possible. Clearly, we need a very different enforcement mechanism than we're using now. Um, And I think there's going to be a lot of debate over what that looks like. Is that the private right of action? Is it state attorney generals, the FTC? I think there are a lot of ways you could build a system that is better um, and would have real consequences for when something really Mm -hmm. goes wrong in in an unreasonable way, Right. right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that's important to mention is that when we often talk about breaches and consequences, you know, they're not going after every little mistake. The more egregious situations where people really did not take a reasonable standard of care. I think penalties are going to be on the table um, and financial ones and ones that matter. So I want to boil it back down to the, you know, the individual level and the, the mom or the, your family at home who may have bought, you know, a device like an Alexa or Google Home to make their life more convenient and easier. Um, there have been talks about these devices laughing unprovoked and, you know, making comments. Are they listening? I mean, do you guys have concerns about these types of devices? What do you do as a consumer to ensure that, you know, you buying your Alexa is only, and that Alexa is only doing, or Google Home, because I want to be fair, is only listening when you want it to listen and only you know, keeping track of the conversations when you activate it. Right, right. And this has become... I don't own one for that reason because <laughs> I don't... It creeps me out. Right, right. Well, and I, I, this is one of those decisions you have to make on the front end about whether you want these always-on devices. They are usually designed to respond to a wake word, right? And they will listen for short periods of time or record for very short periods of time and dump the data. Are um, we sure they dump the data? <laughs> Well, and see, that's sort of a compliance issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, I would say some device manufacturers are trying to make it easier for people, for example, to very clearly put an off button, right? So that if you want to say, okay, I'm just turning off Alexa or Google Home for the night, it's not listening, right? I'll turn it back on in the morning. See, this is where I think privacy law would help, though, mm-hmm. right? Because you would put some guardrails on what could be collected and how the data could be used, And that's why these privacy laws are so much more high stake with the wearables, the home devices. These are the things that worry me because the information they're getting is just so much more intimate, right? Sometimes it feels quaint to be talking about phone records or internet records, right? Like what's out there is crazy. And for example, we've been trying to track um, the information that these devices collect because law enforcement accesses them, right? And sometimes they're not clear rules about how they can do so. And so we're finding cases, you know, where they get information about um, a Fitbit. Um, and they can do that without a subpoena? Connected smart meters. Um, so it's just, they can just collect that they information. Ask, right? they, they just ask Google or Amazon and say, hey, can you send me the recorded conversations from... No. Well, that's the thing, right? Is a lot of the stuff is not quote-unquote, a communication, uh-huh. right? Like, you much easier fall into the privacy laws if you're using your device to mm-hmm. send a text or call somebody. But, We're you in know... in a new place now. New right? Your smart fridge, right, knows when you're home. Right. It knows what you eat and mm-hmm. when. It knows when you have guests over. I mean, there, there are things that they are trying to draw inferences from this data. It almost sounds silly, but 
you know, these things turn up in real life. So one of my favorite cases was um, actually a murder case. And it's famous because they sought the Alexa information, right? They got a warrant to see if it picked up anything when they think this murder happened. It was a long fight over it, but really the case was resolved when they realized this guy is saying, my friend came over, had too much to drink, and drowned in the hot tub. Let's see if that story makes sense because he has a smart water meter. So they go to the water company and they find out that it doesn't fit with the timeline. Suddenly a huge amount of water was used at like four in the morning. And so it was the cover-up story, right? And so I'm sure the guy never stopped to think, oh my gosh, they'll actually know when I filled this hot tub, right? And so there are ways that you can infer things from data that I don't think we realize. I mean, I hear you, Dina, on the Alexa and what you're saying about it being listening, but, you know, at the same time, you're, you're probably going to Uber today, right? Or Uber I did Uber as we were here. I was Ubering my son. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you've got so you've got all that Uber data that's out there. And Agreed. maybe you have to Uber now because taxis and, aren't and, as available. And that's and, personal data. You figure, you know, you're Ubering to your home or to a place that you go to regularly. A lot of the times are being were picked hacked, up. Right? They were hacked not too long ago. They were. Well, one thing I, I would like to ask is, you know, part of Homeland Homeroom's uh, goal is to educate our listeners about how they can participate and learn about what's going on in the in the government and, you know, the, on certain issues. So I would ask, what do you think that, you know, top four or five things regular people should know about privacy and how to protect their privacy on a you know regular basis? Your first major decision is whether to use a device or not, or use a service or not. And it's okay to say no. There are things you could try to do, like um, turn off your devices, for example, right? Like you could turn off your Alexa or your Google Home, or you could turn off your phone if you're doing something sensitive. You could use a VPN. Um, it's especially important if you're at Starbucks or the airport and you're on a public system. Don't use public Wi-Fi for banking. Pay for your data, use your data. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I I will say, you know, do your research. And this is, again, where it's hard, right? Some some VPNs are good, some are not. And, you know, if I can make a plug for what people can do if they want to get involved with their politics and, you know, policy and the rules of privacy is... Um, I think people are really moving to target their local decision makers. And this is both as um, a law enforcement issue, right? We've seen a lot of cities and counties pass regulations to say that before law enforcement can pick up a new surveillance technology, they have to have public hearings, right? There has to be a privacy impact assessment. And it's a way to change the ecosystem, right? It's going to take a lot of work, but we'll eventually get there. So I want to close out. I know you've been here for a while, and we really appreciate your time. I'm going to ask you more of a bit of a contentious question about technology and our devices, and that's the issue of encryption. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of debate about whether law enforcement or how law enforcement can access the data on our everyday cell phones. And if um, tech companies should be helpful to them in doing that in the way they build their devices, where do, where do you guys sit on that? Yeah, you know, we are pro-encryption. We don't want to see any sort of mandate at mm-hmm. all. I think we are skeptical about the breadth and depth of the problem. Mm-hmm. I think if you have a real analysis of what a typical, you know, law enforcement job is, you know what? They don't go to trial. They don't need the fancy tech in the courtroom. You know, they, they already get, you know, a thousand pages worth of Facebook information, you know, on someone. Um the texts, the phone records. I mean, it's there's so much data out there. 
and there's really no empirical evidence that the encryption is thwarting a serious number or a serious type of case in this country. Yeah, I would think they would need some serious wins at their back to, to try to change this or turn it around. I mean, it, it really would take something. And, it, and it's kind of gone away a little bit. I it know has. It, after San Bernardino was kind of a big deal, but that was yeah. a couple of years ago at this point. Right, right. You know, I've heard that threat so many times over the years. Just wait till the next attack and you're mm-hmm. going to lose everything, right? You better come to the table. But frankly, I saw, you know, things turn around years ago, right? I think Fort Hood Someone actually directly tied to Muslim terrorists shooting up a military base. Um, there was not a knee-jerk reaction to that. I thought that was a corner we've turned, and now there have been a number of um, terrorism incidents that did not result in any major legal changes. And so I think we are over that hump, you know. You know, God forbid anything catastrophic happen again. I really hope it doesn't. Um, but I don't think we need to be afraid of people panicking in the face of every incident anymore. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I mean, this has been very enlightening for me, probably for James as well. No, thank you. <laughs> very, and very enlightening. I know for our listeners, you really kind of boiled it down to the basic issues everyone's talking about and will be talking about for, you know, the foreseeable future. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on and uh, good luck with the private legislation. Come back and uh, let us know how that goes. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks for having me. Welcome back to Homeland Homeroom. We're talking privacy today. I'm James Norton. And I'm Dina Graziano. So we know you must have questions about how your own privacy may be vulnerable with all the technology you're using. So let's hear about some of those questions. Sometimes I talk about something in my phone or I talk about it in a G chat and then I start getting ads around that thing. Is my phone listening to my conversations? Apple says absolutely not. They said... Um Siri does not activate unless you activate it. So um, if you have an Apple product, I at least can say with, you know, without a doubt from from their people that they're not listening. Now, I don't have an Android phone or I would err on the side of of no, um, because I think that would really be a true invasion of privacy. Uh, That doesn't mean, though, um, when you are at home and talking to your Alexa that uh, your Alexa or other, you know, home-connected device may not be listening. So that's that's a really good and interesting question. Yeah, and I think I think not only listening, but I think emails. You know, I think that Gmail, they use certain keywords in emails for marketing data or kind of overall trends in emails. And so I think, you know, people who have sent emails in the past, you know, about – XYZ, they end up with emails about, uh, you know, a certain line of clothing or a certain, you know, NFL products or whatever, whatever it could be. The more and more that we buy things online, we buy things on our phones, the more advanced the marketing people are going to be. And they're going to find different ways and techniques to kind of micro target people. Right Absolutely. Uh, I think Google's been pretty clear that it tracks where you go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their business model. Frankly, they get paid on on advertising. So every time you search the NFL website or you know shop at Target and online, they're keeping track of what you're looking for and what you're buying, and they will push you ads. And this has been a a, a problem for a lot of people, especially when it comes to the drug manufacturers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of cases where people who are searching. Um, about medical issues or depression, and then they're pushed 
ads from drug companies about certain drugs they should be using or even crazier, they're pushed ads uh, for gambling. And, you know, take a trip to Las Vegas. It'll <laughs> cure all your woes, which um, is really crazy and um, a bit irresponsible, I think. Let's go to another question. I've heard a lot about regulations around drones lately. Are there any rules in place to prevent drones from spying on us? You know, there's different applications for drones. The FAA actually started a process about two years ago to try to understand, first, what's out there in terms of drones. What do people own either commercially or for fun, recreation, things like that. And so, but then there's also, you know, different risks in place as well. You know, for example, having a drone fly over a stadium, having a drone fly over, you know, a public place and uh, certainly here in the Washington, D.C. area, there's there's a lot of regulation. You know, there, there was a drone that landed on the White, the White House. White House lawn, yeah. Yep, yep. And that, I think, triggered a lot of different drones. I think it turned out to be somebody who was just flying a drone in the area and then crashed it there. But obviously, a lot of people flagged that for security concerns right away. But I think we're still learning. I think the regulatory process at FAA, there's a legislation on the Hill um, where Homeland Security could be put in charge of, of drones and drone security um, that I think it's moving through the House Homeland Security. I think Chairman McCall has yes, been moving that correct. bill. Yep. So I would argue that most of our police departments probably don't have drones, or if they do, they're you know, probably managed by one person and or counter drones or what they are. So we're definitely in the very early stages of understanding this technology, but it certainly is something that we need to, to wrap our arms around. Agreed. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and try to hear from one more listener. Sometimes I get freaked out about all the surveillance cameras that must be around while I'm just living my life. Taking the subway, going to the park, the library, to work. Are there any ways to protect myself from all this surveillance? I would probably say not too much. Um, but again, a lot, of the, a lot of the cameras that we see are closed circuit type cameras. They're not necessarily looking at you at the end. Well, in the U.S., I, wish, I should say. They're not really looking at you as the individual um, in all of those places, obviously, um, our public transportation, um, due to security risks, is always being surveilled for uh, behavior that might be suspicious. Protect yourself, I, I think, is an interesting statement. Um, you know, obviously, people are just really looking for behaviors that are unsafe. Um, if you, you know, and I mean, when I say unsafe, terrorist-related, not your you know day-to-day. <laughs> bad behavior, drugs, solicitation, things like that. They're not looking for those types of things. But I do feel that since 9-11, uh, the surveillance obviously has increased um, markedly because of it, because it has to. Um, I don't know if, James, you have another thought, but I mean, I've kind of gotten used to it. I, I don't I don't even think about it anymore. Yeah, I, I think cameras are essentially <laughs> everywhere now. And yeah. then obviously the bigger cities, the you know, the, the D.C.'s, the New York's, the Boston's, the Miami's, the L.A.'s, the cameras have just become, you know, kind of a standard. I think what you're saying about closed circuit is true. I think there are a lot of challenges with having these cameras on law enforcement. You know, at the end of the day, you can have a thousand cameras out, out there, but you probably need a thousand people to look at the data. Right. So I'm not sure you know, from a use case standpoint, in a real-time situation, how much is being done. I think it's almost really a look back. You know, if something happens, then they're going to go back and look. I think mm-hmm. the Boston Marathon is a perfect example mm-hmm. of cameras and different things around the city that they were able to then go and look back and identify the bombers and, and kind of use that data. So I see it as more of a look back rather than a data, kind of real-time. Real Unless there's a specific, you know, there's a concert or there's a Super Bowl, right. there's something happening that you know, you're, you're going to have, you know, those type of 
law enforcement people that are going to be monitoring those things in real time. But really, it's a look back. I mean, I feel like a lot of the camera stuff we see is like, you know, you always see like the driver driving into 7-Eleven or something and you see the video the next day on the news or something like this person drove through 7-Eleven or some sort of a it's really more crime related, I think, than anything else. They're not looking. I don't think they're looking for the day to day behaviors of people. I think, you know, law enforcement has, you know, obviously they're stretched thin as it is. I don't think someone's sitting behind, you know, multiple cameras in a room watching our everyday moves. And, you know, I've found out, frankly, if you look at cameras in garages that you pull in, um, my car was hit in a garage and I said, well, there's a camera right there. Don't you have it? And they're like, well, actually, there's no tape in the camera. Right. A lot there, of times there's nothing. It's yeah. just a camera. So, um, you know, I think part of it is uh, used as a deterrent. And like James said, part of it is used to look back. And I've kind of gotten used to it. And I think sometimes I actually feel some security with it, especially if you're looking at large venues and transportation areas, you know, you want someone to be paying attention later on if, God forbid, something does happen. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to return. I think you see a lot of cameras at homes. I think a lot of people have mm-hmm. gotten into the Ring, you know, the, the Ring, Ring app. Yes. The Ring app's become really popular, and it's got, you know, kind of a litty, little mini kind of a quarter-sized camera. But I think people, like you said, see that as a deterrent or feel a little bit safer in their homes um, for any reason or even – you know, package theft has become a big thing. People stealing those those packages. And package bombings. I mean, look at that, what, what happened. I mean, obviously, that surveillance helped in those yep. situations, looking at the type of cars and the type of people that were in those areas during those uh, those explosions. Right. So, yeah, I, I think the cameras, whether or not there is the big expensive ones with the, with the dark glass around them that you see around the big cities, I actually see the cameras getting smaller and more mobile. You know, I think everybody has a phone, right, with a camera on it. So I think people are just popping up their phones anytime they see something and filming it and putting it on YouTube or it gets around Twitter or whatever. And I think that's more than anything where you're going to see more and more kind of almost post-game, if you will, something happening or something happening in real time and then going back and looking at it. And this is going to sound very, you know, undemocratic of me, (laughs) but um, my attitude about this now is, like you said, if you have it on your phone – you, you really can't be mad that, you know, peep, that there are cameras everywhere because, you know, a lot of folks today want to say, oh, I don't want anyone looking at me. But the minute, like you said, something happens, right. they're pulling out their phone, they're Snapchatting it, they're Instagramming it, right. they're putting it on Facebook. You can't have it both ways. Right. If you're not doing anything that you're concerned about, then it's just there. Yeah. So, I mean, so, Dina, I mean, you're 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 talking about you know there's a lot of data out there and there's a lot of cameras but the responsibility for protecting that data you know does a department store does a 7-eleven does an individual have to protect that information because you know their systems aren't necessarily secure so Absolutely. i mean what, what do you think we, they should do about that well i think um like any other sensitive data and any type of um, surveillance that's gathering video of of individuals um whether they if you're in a corporation obviously you've given your consent to have yourself filmed um, or whether in a public place, I think they need to make sure that data and those videos are protected because, again, there are bad actors out there who could easily go and clip, you know, get into one of these systems, take a video clip of an individual doing something, you know, they shouldn't be. I mean, say, you know, there was, you know, you're someone cheating on their spouse and it's on closed circuit TV at the at the subway. You know, that's very easy for someone to go in and clip. And then you have, you know, a large scale scandal because these the sensitive data is not being protected as it should be. And I think that's the responsibility 
of the governments or of the local authorities or of the companies to make sure that if they're going to be videoing and um, filming on a, you know, real-time basis that that data is used properly and is not being able to be accessed um, by people who don't have the authority to do so. Well, I think that's a great point. And I think anytime, you know, I walked into Starbucks this morning and I know there's several cameras in the Starbucks. And like you said, I think it's preventative and a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I didn't necessarily sign an agreement with Starbucks for them to film me in there. And so whether it's somebody in the marketing department who goes back and watches the film for three hours of everybody who walks in there, what do they buy? How do they buy it? What were their habits? What do they look like? All those kind of different things. Did I really agree to that? I don't think that I agreed to that. You know, you didn't, and it has to be the surveillance has to be used in an appropriate and responsible manner. And unfortunately, we can't always uh, be sure that that's going to happen. So we have to be sure that we are protecting those types, that type of data. And right, and the release of the data, as you said. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if they decided to put that online or put that somewhere, mm-hmm. and there's maybe something that somebody doesn't want on there, I think exactly. that that's that's a big issue. And maybe it is something for. For regulators to look at in terms of you know having that out there, or maybe it's something that consumers really need to push back on. Thanks everyone for your questions today and for listening to Homeland Homeroom. Make sure to email info at homelandhomeroom.com with your questions about security, and you can follow us on Twitter at HomelandPod. Please also leave us a review on iTunes. Homeland Homeroom is produced by 90 West. Our producer is Emma Jean Weinstein, and we've recorded this show at Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. Thanks, everybody, for listening.